Hi there. Welcome back to 500years.org podcast with Jeff Till. That's me. It's May 3rd, 2016, and we just passed our first year anniversary of releasing the podcast. This is going to be episode 19. My original intention was to do 12 episodes per year, and I've pretty much done that if you remove the podcasts that have me being interviewed by someone else. Today, we're going to talk about me. I realize now that when I started the podcast that there was no context for neither my initial starting point as a worldview. I didn't explain what I was going to talk about, what the reason for having a podcast was, or what I intended to accomplish with it. I basically just dug in with my first piece and started talking. This podcast is going to be called My Struggle, Episode Zero, and it is the proper Episode Zero that would kick off the podcast so you know what I was talking about right from the start. A little after I had named the podcast 500 Years, I had thought about calling it My Struggle, which is kind of a provocative title since it is the title of Hitler's most famous book. And I'm not a particular big fan of Hitler. I just thought it would be kind of provocative, yet still be personal in the way that it came out. I'm pretty happy with 500 Years as well. As I've explained on other podcasts, I chose it because I thought it was a multi-general multi, excuse me, multi-generational look into the future. And at the same time, I wanted to talk about things that are very immediate. So it had sort of a cool rock band type of name. And so I'm pretty happy with that. So I'm going to stick with it. But this podcast, I can call my struggle and still have that provocative, much needed Hitler connection that everybody desires to have. So let me introduce myself. My name is Jeff Till. I'm a 45-year-old white guy who lives in the Charleston area of South Carolina. I have a beautiful wife who is a stay-at-home mom and three delightful young children, Addie, age 10, Huck, age 8, and Verity, who is turning 5 this month. It's a full house, to be sure. I also own my own company. We are a six-person marketing agency called Sam Lab, or the Strategy and Methods Laboratory. You can find out more about that at Sam, like the boy's name, hyphen lab, like the place where scientists work, dot com. I also have started many other businesses in my career, and I also used to work for other companies. My current employment as owner and general manager of SamLab is a part-time job, which pays very well, and it's very much centric to my lifestyle to not have too much work to do and to do it from home. I haven't had a in-person meeting probably in about seven years. I haven't had to travel for business in probably 10 years, and I can only count on my fingers how many times in the last seven years I've had to interact face-to-face with someone either who I worked with or who was a client. With maybe the exception of some personal stuff I've done with some of my staff, I've had other staff who have been with me one for three years now, and I've never seen his face. I have no idea what he looks like, 
and yet he's been a full-time salaried employee for that entire time. I also homeschool my children or unschool, which means they don't go to school at all, and they are not forced into any curriculum and instead do what they want to do with their lives. It's a way of making them free, and what I've tried to do is live my life as free as I could. My home here in South Carolina is relatively new of two and a half years. Before that, I spent 20 years in the Boston area struggling through the snow, and before that, I lived for about 22 years in Michigan, both in the Detroit area and the western part of the state. So why am I doing a podcast? Well, the answer is, I don't really know. Basically, I've been studying things like economics and libertarian thought and metaphysics and religion and education for a very long time, probably a good 15 to 20 years. And only now do I sort of feel prepared to start giving back to that conversation, to start adding my little bit to the overall conversation. I didn't want to do a podcast or a blog that was a unified field theory for political theory um, or a field guide to all of libertarianism or education. I really didn't think that was necessary because it's already been done before. So at the same time, I didn't have a very, very specific niche that I wanted to fill, uh, sort of like the School Sucks Project or Radical Personal Finance, or The Singularity Brothers, these type of podcasts, which have a very discreet and focused theme that they pick apart every single week, and that allows them to go very deep. At the same time, I'm kind of sad I don't have that, because it makes me a generalist, and it probably ruins my ability to target a market for the podcast. But it's really not about the market, it's about me and my enjoyment of being able to do this. So what I try to do is I try to collect little bits uh, in the unswept corners in popular or unpopular thought that I haven't read or heard about before. And I collect these, what I hope are, at least to me, original thoughts, and I try to put a package together of almost complete originality uh, that doesn't necessarily have to teach, you know, classical liberalism or economics, or freedom, or education, but instead, you know, it's just these little nooks, these little niche points that I can sort of riff off of and try to bring that new information. And and that way, I don't have to repeat necessarily or educate about all of the thinking that everyone else has done. Instead, I can just add on my little bits. Of course, the problem is, is if you were a user, a listener coming into this podcast and didn't have that exact same database or that same knowledge base of thought preceding this conversation, it might not make a lot of sense because I'm presuming that my audience was exactly in the same place that I was when I started the podcast as far as their sort of knowledge or worldview development. And that's probably not fair, especially if I get more listeners than the you know, 10. I think we're, we're getting about 50 now. Uh, eventually, we might run out of people who have the exact same mirrored worldview as me. So the, pers- the purpose of this podcast is to set that baseline So in a way that you can, anyone who wanted to could sort of either catch up or understand my view 
and know that that's the starting point. And so if I say something radical or stupid or interesting or wrong in these podcasts, you at least know perhaps the faulty or the high quality basis that I'm starting from. I think this approach should result in a lot of original content because most of the podcasts I'm doing are collections of these custom analyses that I've basically haven't read before, or if the pieces, obviously there's a lot of pieces that come from other material, but I'm hoping I'm framing them in a new way, which will hopefully create a lot of new material and not too much retread of stuff that you could learn elsewhere. Because of this, I'm probably only good for about 30 episodes before I'm done with the podcast altogether. Now, I've already found a lot more themes going into this than I thought, ever thought I would when I first planned it a year ago. So that could actually be 40 or 50, or maybe it is actually an infinite level of podcasts that I can do of near complete originality before I would have to switch to doing a different format, such as doing interviews or conversations or talk style shows or just reading other material or reflecting on the news, for, which would be awful. I don't have any explicit goals for the podcast. It's very enjoyable to look and see that people have downloaded it and listened to it. It's an absolute delight to have friends say, oh, I listened to this episode and it was really good. And that part right there is very rewarding. I don't have any monetary or celebrity goals. I, I don't plan on ever asking for money. And I don't know if I care if I ever become a important or serious voice in, the, in, say, the overall education movement or the overall freedom movement. Either of those would be dandy, and I'd welcome them, but they're not a requisite, and they're not part of the plan of doing the podcast. The last reason why I'm doing a podcast is pretty much because my friend Isaac Morehouse started doing one, and I, don't, I forget if he uh, encouraged me or made me do it, but I really couldn't have him speeding that much further ahead of me and everything. So I had to pick up the microphone and do a podcast as well. So it's partly his fault. Also, I was listening to another person who sort of indirectly encouraged me was a little bit that Brett Vinat of the School Sucks Project did, where he says, and you can hear that in the, the interview I did with him in episodes three or four or five or something, that if you don't put something out, if you don't join the conversation as a contributor, you don't get to be part of the conversation. And when I told that back to him, when I got to talk to him, he says, wow, that sounds awful. Like what a egomaniac I am to say that you, you can't be part of the conversation unless you are doing something. But oddly enough, I only got to be a guest on his show or invited to that conversation because I had actually written my first blog piece. So I think it was right in the end. So let's go through now my baseline beliefs that I presumed that every listener who ever started with episode one already understood all of these principles to start with. Quite unfair, considering how long it took me to get through all of this material. At the same time, I hope a lot of the things that I've said on the podcast don't actually require people to have the exact same worldview as me. In fact, I hope most of it still was able to stand on its own 
whether I was talking about nationalism or Star Wars or Disney or obligation or the role of school and identity or my criticisms of school, etc., could probably all be consumed by people with very different worldviews and still would either find some learning or agreement. So here we go. My basic beliefs, as far as the worldview is concerned, is politically, I am a libertarian. More specifically, I'm a market voluntarist or a anarcho-capitalist or an anarchist or someone who doesn't believe there should be government at all. This is both a emotional preference because I absolutely despise the idea it's a moral preference because I don't believe that one group of people have a different set of morality than all other people, which is essentially what government suggests that it has, that there's certain people who wear a certain uniform or have a certain office that allows them to take people's money against their will, allows them to put people in cages against their will, called prisons, uh, allows them to murder other people, as in war, and call it just and call it moral. So basically, my, my most aligned beliefs are probably Rothbardian in nature. And so if you wanted to catch up on all of that, you could get Rothbard's book, uh, For a New Liberty, which I thought probably did the best job of categorically going through and completely exhaustively going through every sort of political issue that you could imagine and explaining what a both a moral and a consequential, a practical approach to those would be. So there's no point in me repeating all of For a New Liberty. It already exists, and you can find that probably even for free online. That also means that I'm a free market capitalist, and I believe that people should be able to freely interact without any coercion or modification from an external source so that anyone can do business with anybody else and voluntarily exchange. And I think this is both moral because it excludes the use of violence in community interactions or social interactions, and it's a great system for creating value because every time some two people do a voluntary exchange, they both receive more than they're giving up. So when I go buy a sandwich from Subway, they value my $5 more than they value the five, you know, the footlong, and I value the footlong, theoretically, more than I value my $5. So it's a way of where everybody actually wins, wins. It's there's not necessarily winners and losers. There's just winners and winners. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So for free market capitalism, both I can go back to Rothbard on this one or von Mises, Human Action, probably is the most complete account of how this brand of economics and political organization, not really, you can't call it political, social organization works. And so there's really no reason for me to repeat that entire thing. Now, as far as being as far as philosophy, rationality, self-interest, and my atheism is concerned, uh, I am an atheist. I believe in rationality. I believe in my five senses. I believe in the scientific method. I believe in observation. So 
that has led me, even at the young age of 11, to reject any idea of a deity or a god or any kind of supernatural occurrence. So it's just reality is reality, and I think it's important that, at least for me, that I, I practice my, my own morals and my own view of reality that way, and I wholly encourage other people to think that way as well. I think Ayn Rand is a good place to start there. Uh, she has a pretty complete framework for philosophy, not all everything that I agree with. Uh, for example, her stuff on aesthetics is kind of is kind of silly, and she never quite got to anarchism herself, but that's a good place to start there. I am into peaceful parenting which is a practice of treating children with respect and trying to minimize the use of parental authority whenever you can. So that's no spanking, that's no punishments, that's no uh, threats of abandonment, that's no yelling and useless arguing or calling authority, threatening to turn things off, saying not in my house, all of that garbage that parents do that reflects the the sort of power differential between children and adults. So I very much believe in that. And a great source on that is Freedom in Radio with Stefan Molyneux. If you listen to his parenting stuff, he is a very serious advocate for treating children as human beings. And I agree with him on this, that the only way that the future is going to get better is if we stop putting authority as the the main you know, dominant thing in a child's life. And once they experience freedom, and my friend Isaac also talks about this, once they have the experience of freedom, they have an experiential view of freedom and respect and non-authority, then the rest of the stuff will all come into place. People won't feel so beholden to go to school and to worship the government, etc. That also means, because I'm a peaceful parent, that we homeschool or more accurately, unschool, which means we let the kids do what they want to do on their own interests, on their own pursuits of happiness, on their own time, on their own schedules, as best we can. And so we've been doing this for about two and a half years, and we've already seen a lot of success. I would encourage other people to look into this. My favorite source of information on this that I don't have to repeat over is probably John Taylor Gatto. I've learned from him the most, mostly about, in his criticism of public education, it's very easy to go through that experience of reading his books and then seeing what the future really has to be, especially both at a personal level where it's like, rescue your children, get them out now. It doesn't matter if we change the system because we can't just wait to petition the government until we, we save our own children. You know, if, if you're in a war zone and you're being bombed, that's not the time to write a note to your congressman. It's the time to grab your family in your arms and run as fast as you can. And then structurally, or in a societal level, I think it's also the best way to finally put an end to public schooling. If, for example, if the rich people and the crazy people, which right now you have to be one or the other to go into homeschooling, uh, start doing it at a, at a good enough pace that will open up the avenues and the alternatives for the middle class to start doing it. And then once that happens, then school becomes something that only poor people do. And everybody hates uh, both being poor and seeing people poor and doing poor things. And eventually they'll get rid of it too. 
But by then, hopefully, the market will come up with enough affordable options that even poor people will uh, be able to escape the public school system. They probably need it desperately the most. Probably the last bit of my worldview that you'd have to understand is I'm intensely interested in building personal freedom, which is instead of worrying about politics and being the angry political libertarian, you start focusing on things in your own life that you can change. So a lot of things that I did that I've talked about before is I've not had my wife go to work so that she could be around the children and myself. I don't go to work, essentially, even though I do have a, a, a job and an income. I did took my kids out of school. Uh, we cut off obligations that we didn't like and people in our lives that weren't valuable or weren't enjoyable. And then we also escaped the things like the cold and got somewhere warm where we can live sort of in a semi-vacation state all the time. And basically giving this line of thought lots of contemplation, whether it's changing the way we, we consume or the way we try to avoid conformity for the sake of conformity or in the way that we plan our day-to-day lives. A great resource for this that we've already been through on this show is Harry Brown and how I found freedom in an unfree world. This is a great place. Uh, I'd like to think in my uh, my original parts of this podcast, I've done a good job contributing to that area and to education. I, I think those were the strongest areas that I've been able to apply some new thought with even my... my uh, my what do you call them my my twinklings my my musings in stuff like economics and politics being probably the less interesting of the stuff anyway so that's the starting point so if you want to catch up read all read and listen to all that stuff if you don't care at least now you know where i'm starting from and every time i say something uh, crazy stupid or smart you'll know partly the basis of which i'm building off of So I've also got some hobbies that sort of influence how I approach this podcast. My oldest hobbies are is I am a fine artist who has painted and drawn hundreds and hundreds of paintings and pictures and actually went to college for it and used to be a pretty pretty good practicer of it probably up until 2009 where my family started taking a lot more of my time as well as my company in some ways. Uh, I used to like to paint very provocative pictures that had a lot of fighting and sex and nudity and comedy in them. And unfortunately, I've taken them offline. They used to be on a sort of a little museum on my site, tasmlab.com, T-A-S-M-L-A-B. But some of them were so offensive that I actually got worried that I would offend some of my clients my 1,000 plus corporate clients that I serve in my business. My business, by the way, is a small marketing agency that serves the management consulting and enterprise technology fields, helping sales support. We're a fearsome sixum, and as you can imagine, that can be a very conservative base of clients to work for especially given the scale of the deals that, that we help them close. It's usually between six and nine to 10 figure deals. So 
I couldn't be too silly, I thought, with my public persona. Even this podcast might be a bit of a risk. I was also an actor when I was very young, and actually that was my major in college, although I have long given that up. I am a hobbyist musician, and although I haven't released anything in the last five years, I have eight vanity records, and I think sometime I'm going to do a podcast where I actually give you a little tour of all of this great music, but you can find it all. It ranges from everything from punk rock to progressive sort of punk metal to wild uh, opera of sorts, like space opera, to piano and violin vocal duels, to sort of very nice, uh, what would you say, like Burke Bacharach type of uh, easy listening, uh, some fun camper van Beethoven time type uh, college rock, and then probably my last one, The Brambles of Hell, which is just a disgusting curse fest of obscenity and wild music. Anyways, you can go to tasmlab.com and you can either buy my music on mp3 off cdbaby.com or you can buy physical CDs, although that's kind of being phased out. As a musician, probably my strongest suit is composition. I used to be able to write just about anything. I've Since I've been in high school, I've composed roughly about 500 songs. As far as my recorded work that's public, I think there's 129 songs available. I actually have the other 400 recorded. I just don't, they're not good enough to be released into the public domain. I'm a really kick-ass bass player, or at least I used to be. Uh, I can really shred with the best. Also, I was in my last band, I was a drummer, and I still have a drum set. I'm a capable to amateur style drummer. I can play guitar pretty well, both electric and acoustic. I play keys in both uh, somewhat uh, live, okay, and but I'm pretty masterful at programming keys. If you listen to either Thing and Nothing or my album, The Essential Cubicle Nose Picker, you'll find some very sophisticated keyboard work in there, even though I probably couldn't play it live. And then I love to sing. And I'm an awful singer. I struggle with pitch. I have a horrible tone. The only thing I really do well is in sort of an acting-like delivery of putting drama into the vocals. But I don't care, because it is the most joyful thing of any piece part of music to do is to sing even though on a lot of my records i've actually brought in other singers to do a better job and it actually took me a while to come up with the sort of the ego tolerance of letting other people sing my work but in the end when you hear the results it can be preferred a lot of the times now even though i haven't written much music in the last five years i I'm not pretending like I've given it up altogether. Right now I have some other priorities that I'm working on. So I hope that music will come back into my life at some point. My other hobbies is, of course, I study things like economics and philosophy and education and other topics like that. I've recently taken a shine to, after my Singularity Brothers appearance, I've been listening to their podcast and getting into a lot of uh, technology and futurism. I also like to uh, 
uh, enjoy the outdoors to a certain degree. I walk for four miles a day. And during the summer, I swim for a thousand yards. I like to play with my kids. We're big into Nintendo and PlayStation 3, and we play poker together. And so I'm, I have an interest there. I have an interest in other media, such as movies and science fiction. I'm a huge fan of the mighty New England Patriots and NFL football and read articles about it every day. In fact, I might rather be doing that right now than talking to you fine people. I just absolutely love the team. Uh, Crazy, crazy fanatic. Watch every single game. Can't help myself. I'm a hobbyist cook and just love preparing meals. I am basically the full-time dinner cooker over here at our house and we delight in entertaining. I like to hang out with my friends and have like 20 drinks in a night and have a lot of yucks. So I really enjoy that. Of course, good conversation. Great conversation is absolutely wonderful. And the last thing I do as a hobby is I have a blog and a podcast, but that's kind of duh, right? Oh, and as you know, I also wrote a book last year. So you can go find that on Amazon, Rise Above School by Jeffrey Till. Buy it. It's selling better than I ever thought it would, although that doesn't mean much. I think it's been about 40 copies so far, but I was really expecting about zero. So check that out. More projects, of course. Other hobbies will come as I get older and find new things to do. I don't like to think of myself as one thing or the other, but a completely hopefully an open mind to try whatever comes up next and whatever interesting thing occurs. For this next segment, I'm going to spend about 20 or 30 minutes telling you the story of my life. Now, some of this might be a repeat of what you heard in my interview with Isaac Morehouse on the Everything Isaac podcast. Also, if you're not interested, uh, you can skip ahead, but I have to warn you, if you don't listen to this part, you're going to miss the part with the man with the semen on his head, you're going to miss the part where the man jumps in front of a train, and you're going to miss the part where my kids mistake Ron Paul to be my dad. Okay. You know, I think I need a beer for this one. It's 3 o'clock on Thursday, and I'm supposed to be working, of course, but we're going to podcast instead. So anyway, I was born November 22nd, 1970, in the crappiest city in the United States, Detroit, Michigan, where I lived for four years. I would like to think that my parents planned my birth on that day because it was the anniversary of the assassination of Kennedy, and wouldn't it just be totally badass if the destruction of one of the favorite governors of the world was the whole impetus for why I was born. Anyways, oddly enough, my sister was born on November 22nd as well, exactly four years and one minute later. So we're almost twins, except for four years and one minute. Anyway, growing up, I thought that we were pretty rich as a family, But it turned out later when I would move to Boston that we weren't rich at all. We were just this very pedestrian middle class. In Detroit, being rich is something to be ashamed of, oddly enough, at school. 
Uh, it was always like cool to be in the 313, which was the area code of Detroit proper, even though it seems like everywhere else, people prefer to be grown up in nice places. So after living in Detroit for four years and then a brief stint in Eminem's hometown of Sterling Heights, we moved to Beverly Hills, which is a little town in between Birmingham and Southfield, Michigan, and is considered a very nice suburb of Detroit. My childhood was pretty ordinary, except that I had a huge passion for art and drawing and was convinced I was going to be a cartoonist. And I excelled at this. I, I was probably the best artist in any of the schools I attended, uh, K through 12 for the most part. Uh, maybe when I got to high school, I had some competition. Uh, my dad was a jeweler and he worked probably 60 to 70 hours every week, including Saturdays. I didn't know people got the weekends off until I was in the workforce myself. Probably one of the neatest parts of my dad's job that I remember was as a jeweler, he used to vacuum his shop once a month. And he would come home with this great big uh, vacuum cleaner bag full of dust and dirt. And we would spread out newspapers and he would dump the whole thing on the dining room table. And what he would do is we would all take tweezers and pick out all of the metal and gemstones that we found within the bag. And he was able to, by sight, be able to sort platinum, white gold, silver, and then even tin, like from a paper clip, into neat piles just based on sight, even though they, they were all just white metals. Then he would take that bag and he would sell it to a goldsmith who would melt down the whole bag of uh, dust and then this was during the mid 80s when gold was really spiking now of course it, i think it was made a high of like 600 dollars an ounce which was just ridiculous back then uh you know but you know compared to now what's i think it's at 1300 but he would get you know like a thousand bucks for his vacuum bag dirt my dad wasn't home ever and when he was he would just get drunk and go to sleep so I never saw him very much, and he never really cared for being a, a parent. Uh, he could do his best to pretty much ignore the family as much as he possibly could. My mother made us go to church every single Sunday. We were originally Catholic, and then at some point she decided to shop, and that's where we attended just about every denomination of church, from Episcopalian to Baptist to Lutheran, and then finally settled on Methodist. By the time I was in high school, I had to attend church pretty much for eight hours a day every Sunday, some of it by choice because I went to this cool church in Detroit that had a lot of punk rockers. We would work in an industrial soup kitchen. We would uh, have activities, and then, of course, a lot of prayer-type Bible study activities. Despite this, I still, at the age of 11, became an atheist, I remember I was really excited about confirmation because confirmation was the ceremony where you decided as the individual to believe in the church and to, you know, you were no longer the, the agent of your parents. And I took that to mean that I got to choose whether I wanted to believe and go or not, meaning that the negative choice was an option that I could just say, well, I'm, I'm confirmed, I'm doing this on my own. so. Uh, 
I'm going to throw my hands up in the air and say there is no such thing as God and not go anymore. But that's not how it works. The confirmation is positive only. It means that you confirmed that you want to go and there's no other option. So that's kind of silly to call that a choice, but that's what it was in the context of the church. Entering high school, I became a real freak. I started playing music, starting with the keyboard, started composing right away. I then moved on to guitar and then later picked up the bass because to have a bass means you get to play in a band because there isn't very many bass players. I was really into college music at that time, uh, everything from the psychedelic furs to the descendants to the cure. I had long hair with it sort of shaved on the sides, would wear like eye makeup to school, sort of looked like a uh, punky uh, ragdoll version of someone from the Thompson Twins, uh, but not probably equally as effeminate, uh, but probably not quite as well put together or coiffed. Uh, I dressed funny. Uh, I had uh, scads and scads of friends. I moved into, besides music and art, I also started drama. I uh, was in a lot of plays, was a favorite actor there. Uh, although I never uh, truly scored any leads, I'm not sure why I thought I was such a good actor that I should sign up for college and do major in acting and watercolor painting. At the time, when I was leaving high school, I didn't really want to go to college, and I told my mother that I wasn't going to go. I was going to go and play bass in the Detroit rock scene. She said no. She probably rightly so told me that nobody would take me seriously, and I graduated when I was 17, so I wouldn't even be allowed in the clubs which the bands played in. So that was that was all true. Also, in high school, I had an absolutely miserable uh, GPA. My academic GPA was a 1.9, I believe, which is a D minus, which is passing. And that wasn't because I was uh, dumb or incapable. I just never did a single lick of homework. And I was good at tests, so I could usually get an A on the test, but then get an E for all the schoolwork. So my report cards often by by quarter would look like D, E, A, you know, C minus, D, a, and that was enough to sort of save me. I scored well on the SAT and the uh, the other one, the ACT, uh, good enough to go to the one of the, the popular state schools such as U of M or MSU, but the grade point average just wasn't there. My mother actually wrote all my essays on my college applications because I really just had no interest. So I got into Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, and that seemed good enough. Uh, big school, good three hours away from where we lived, so not you know close enough to get home, but not close enough where parents could pop in on me. And I had a really good time, even though I would have now, looking back, I wish I would have not gone to high school or elementary school or any school whatsoever, and I wish I didn't go to college. Uh, I did have a blast. I was a theater major, even though I had never really scored a lead in even in a high school play. I don't know why. I thought that going to a college, I would suddenly get better. I did get parts. I was always sort of the comic relief. I was in Hamlet and Macbeth, and I always played the the clown or the gravedigger because I had exceptional energy. I had a ton of friends there, but I only lasted two semesters in the theater program as an active member. I still stayed in and got my degree, 
for the five years, I just stopped participating in the plays, which is really what you're supposed to be there for. In truth, I never really wanted to be a stage actor, or nor did I have a love of Henrik Ibsen plays or Shakespeare or whatever. I really wanted to be Han Solo in Star Wars, but they don't have that in college, which is c- kind of strange that since uh, TV media and movie media are really our only modern interactions with acting, very few people actually, you know, go to go to a play, you know, unless they're taking a special trip to Broadway. So why they would teach acting completely out of context with film makes no sense. Of course, this program at school was all attended by other losers. Um, no one there was ever going to have really the talent to go on and become a professional actor. Now, this handful of them in my class do have jobs between summer stock. Uh, I had my friend Stephen Lynch, who was, I've played some of his music on this show. He's a comedian and is successful. And I think there's one other girl who now is in like IBM and Xbox commercials playing a mom, but had to actually almost had to wait until she was the mom age before she started getting these commercial parts. And I don't really even think if you're an actor who's been studying Shakespeare and the craft of convincing people that you're someone else on stage, that it's some intense victory to be in a laundry commercial, since that really has nothing to do with your passion for the the drama, the stories, and the craft. You're just a body using soap. Anyways, uh, good for her. I'm, I'm not uh, putting down her, her career. It's just, it's not really what you wanted to do. The art department that I studied watercolor painting, uh, just generally arts, but watercolor painting was my my specialty. That whole program had maybe one talented person in it. Most of it was house mothers who were looking for something to do. I mean, this was sort of the caliber of Western Michigan University. It was really just a place to waste time. In defense of my two crappy majors, the I wouldn't have made it through to my degree had I studied anything else. So had I not picked the easiest piece of shit degree that was the most fun, it just wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have lasted through the the alcohol and drugs and then through the allure of playing in rock bands, which was really the biggest and funnest thing I did during that time. I was in three bands playing bass and singing for all of them. They were... The first one was... Blind, no, what was it called? The first one was called Cry, and we were sort of a punk rock Descendants ripoff band. The second one was Overman, and that one was also a Descendants ripoff band that eventually sort of morphed into a No Means No hybrid uh, ripoff band. We weren't really a ripoff band, we just heavily borrowed from the styles. We were all original music for the most part, but we took sort of the the regular hardcore type punk and put in some more of the technical, more elaborate stuff that No Means No, as well as adopting their storytelling approach. If you haven't heard No Means No and you like some unusual music, highly recommended. I'd, I'd recommend The Descendants and all too. I only have like two favorite bands and I stopped listening to music about 15 years ago and really have no idea what's going on. Here, you know what, I'll just play you a tune from the Overman record and you can check it out for yourself. I think this is only going to be about 120 seconds long. If it goes longer, I will cut the clip short. So if you don't want to listen to music, you can fast forward two minutes. So here it is. This is called I'll Go Alone. (laughs) 
Okay, so that was actually only um, less than two minutes, so hopefully that wasn't too tedious for you. That's me playing bass and singing. It's actually me playing guitar as well, and my friend Craig playing drums. The bass did kick ass, didn't it? I was also a radio DJ during that time, and started off pretty hot, but the I was so uninterested in listening to music that I would just play the same show every week, and eventually the other DJs uh, started ganging up on me and saying, you know, why don't you do an original show? And then so I had to quit. The rock bands were, for the small town of 70,000, were pretty popular. We could play at the one of the clubs, small clubs, and draw a decent crowd. There was a big, this was during the whole Seattle boom, so there was hundred, you know, about 125 bands in this tiny town and about 7 to 12 places that people could play. And there was this really big camaraderie around playing music in that town during that time. This would have been about between 1990 and 1993, uh, including even I have friends. My friend Brent was uh, signed to Warner Brothers in his band Thought Industry. My other roommate and friend uh, Chris was signed uh, by a big label, and they put out an album. Our band, unfortunately, never got signed none of them especially the the third one which was our most popular was screw tape which was a progressive punk rock type of thing think king crimson meets mr bungle here i'll play a track off our hit cd as well which is probably the largest selling cd of the eight that i've produced probably selling uh, i don't know maybe a thousand total maybe not that many 500 uh, this will be also under two minutes long, so if you want to race ahead, if you're not in the mood for music, you can skip ahead. This is me. I'm singing and playing bass, and Colin is playing guitar, and my friend Craig, again, from the same band, is playing the drums. <coughs> oh, you shouldn't drink beer while podcasting, because it makes you burp. Anyway, this is Three Red Bicycles by Screwtape. MCMX CMX, I think, off their our debut and only album, Anthem on Anthem, or Don't Try the Mechanism. That's me playing the bike horn too, by the way. And the bell.
oh, I forgot that these MP3s cut off in weird places. The whole album is set up to be essentially one giant song. So it's got nine songs on it, but we engineered transitions between them so that the songs never, there's no breaks in between the songs. And we used to play our set that way too. So we would rehearse not only our songs uh, with crazy amount of time, uh, as we would to just learn all those different parts and there's actually even more complex songs on the record but we would we would execute the entire set so that we would play the entire thing without a single break and so people didn't even know when one song ended and the other one began unless they saw us quite often or had listened to our cd and it became a very entertaining and high energy show we would get our whole set done in about 25 minutes as opposed to the 45 minutes allotted to us but it was packed with action, including even rehearsed vocal dialogue bits and other sort of theatrics. It was a great time, great fun. Eventually, with that band, we had thought about either moving and or getting a whole lot better. And we were finally trying to commit to this. Um, Colin, our guitar player, had decided that he would return to music school. And at the end of this, I decided I would move to Boston to hopefully pursue a music career there. We had an interesting visual transformation in our look as rockers. During 1989 and 1990, everyone in this huge scene, which is probably about 200 people, and it really it was kind of hard to tell uh, people apart from each other as far as what they did because you go to a party and there would be all these musicians but also there there could be poetry majors who had long hair and funny clothes or there could be actual thugs and drug dealers or criminals who would also dress funny and have long hair and then sometimes even some hicks from the metal scene would show up back then all of us rockers and I'm talking about dozens and dozens of people all sort of had this same uniform, which was extremely long hair, like hair down to your waist. And then we'd wear a rock band t-shirt, a black leather jacket of a biker style, then shorts over tights or long johns, and then combat boots. And it was kind of, what's kind of dumb about this is for all these people who are trying to be nonconformist we all dressed exactly alike, and it always sent this big signal. It's like you walk into a room, and it's like, oh, that guy's in a rock band. He's got the rock band uniform on. So anyways, right in the transition between Overman and Screwtape, I sort of realized this, and I go, oh, my God, we're just broadcasting exactly what's going to happen. And so the band decided that we'd all get short crops, conservative haircuts, and then also start wearing polo shirts and stuff like that so that nobody could see us coming. We would step on stage with our short hair and our heads and just uh, try to blow everyone out with heavy metal music. Also, my leather jacket had gotten stolen. We had lived in the north end of Kalamazoo, which turned out to be a really dicey area. The Our house was, in the first two months we lived there, was broken into seven times to the point where they had, were running out of things to steal. So they had already stolen our leather jackets, which turned out to be a blessing in disguise because Kalamazoo is very cold. And we were a bunch of idiots standing around outside in our leather jackets. So after our leather jackets were stolen, everybody's mom bought them a sensible winter parka. And 
that part of the trend had changed. The thieves were so desperate to take stuff that they would even take empty CD cases, thinking that there were CDs in there that they could sell for a couple bucks. So it was, and they would break in the house while we were actually home. So it was very, you could see sort of the desperation of people who need to, who would risk breaking into a house just to grab a couple CDs, hoping they could take them over to the record shop and get a couple bucks. You're, you know, you're essentially risking getting shot for that matter. Kalamazoo was also the most dangerous place I had ever lived. Uh, In there, I had, I was at a party and had a friend next to me have a gun pulled on them. My roommate had a gun pointed at his head while walking down the street. I once had a like a 10 or a 12 year old offer to sell me a gun. We had a guy down the street who came to our house to sell us an automatic weapon, a submachine gun that had two like 10 round clips uh, electrical tapes together so that after you shot everybody in the room, you could quickly pull out the magazine or the clip, whatever they call it, and then stick it back in the other side and make sure that you kill every motherfucker in the entire place. The, I'm trying to think if there was other events like that. But anyways, I've, I've never seen so many guns in a criminal context than I did in Kalamazoo, nor have I ever lived somewhere that was such an utter and complete dump. It turns out, though, every time I move, I realize I was living in a dump and just didn't realize it. And so it's nice to move somewhere somewhere nicer and then look back at that place you used to have fondness for and go, wow, I really lived in a dump. My work experience, so my college experience was really nothing. I barely showed up to classes, most of my classes. I didn't have anything hard. I didn't have a single math class. I might have had one writing class and a handful of science classes. I had to take bowling as a gym requirement and archery and the thing about bowling is that when you do it three times a week you actually get pretty good so that class was worthwhile although it's kind of ridiculous that there's this educational requirement that you have to take bowling in order to get a piece of paper saying that you graduated by the time i did finish my five years at western michigan university i think i had accumulated 17 crap jobs up to that point Some of them in high school. I started working at the age of 14 at Marshall's Department Store, where I worked in the shoe department and as a cashier, making $3.52 an hour. I had to get special permission, I believe, from the the city and my parents to be able to work, which is kind of stupid, considering I was able to get there and I was a very competent employee. I went from there to work at Kroger Grocery Store Deli, where I was a deli man. I used to make pizzas and cut meat and assemble sandwiches and I'd clean out the cooler and I had that job for a long time. I got to work with my best two of my best friends there. So that was actually pretty fun. I would later work that later between I think my uh, senior year and college or no this was probably a little bit later but I was a waiter twice. I worked at TGI Fridays and then at another sort of more exclusive Italian cafe called Punchinello's, and both were absolutely miserable experiences. I still have nightmares about having the soup come out of the kitchen before the salads and stuff like that. They were absolutely brutal jobs where you would get no no rest whatsoever. People, they even had a cot in the back of TGI Fridays where exhausted waiters and waitresses would have to lay down if they were having sort of like a nervous breakdown and they would have given some soup to sip on. I was also there in charge of making the coleslaw, which was 
a really unattractive process of taking a 36-gallon trash can and dumping in these giant sort of peat, you know, peat mulch-style bags of shredded cabbage and, and carrots, and then these giant oil can, even bigger than like a paint can size cans of dressing, and then you would mix it together with like a garden shovel. And that was how people they made coleslaw to serve with all of the the meals that they were serving. I only lasted about two weeks at each of those jobs, and they were probably the only jobs that I was ever fired from, not including when I was later laid off in after nine eleven. Uh, I was also a roller rink DJ, which was pretty fun. Uh, taking my radio DJ experience, I would spin the tunes at the roller rink for the kids. I was also the only staff member at the roller rink who didn't have to do other jobs, so I never had to patrol the floors or work the skate room or work the concession stand or take tickets up front. I was only a DJ, and my manager was 19 years old, and I tried to make myself a bit of celebrity there. I had customized my own uniform shirt, much to the disappointment of my employers, and I would go out and do the hokey pokey with the skaters and try to be as funny as I could in the DJ booth. I think my favorite song to blast back then was Lita Ford's Kiss Me Deadly. I went to a party last Saturday night. I did a good leg. I got in a fight. Uh-huh. It ain't no big thing. Late for my job and the traffic was bad. Had to borrow 10 bucks from my old man. Uh-huh. Went to a party last Saturday night, had a few beers, and didn't get laid. Well, uh uh-huh, it ain't no big thing. What, uh, still a pretty cool jam, uh, totally brought me back. I had to bite my lip and bob my head up and down. But you really have to imagine being at the skating rink where the lights are all off except for all these uh, siren lights and, and colored lights and strobe lights and everyone's skating around and this thing is blasting through like a million watts stereo system uh, in a huge echo chamber. And it's just like this white trash anthem uh, about going to a party, had a few beers, didn't get laid, got in a fight. Anyway, cool times still brought me back. Probably my most significant jobs that I had during this time, and there were others, I'm not, you know, I was a telemarketer and I had some other sort of dipshit jobs like that. 
the the two we're going to talk about the first one was the velvet touch and now the velvet touch is this sort of sex emporium uh side retail store where they would sell dildos and other sexual appliances blow-up dolls lingerie pornographic movies all natures of pornographic magazines including local swinger magazines they didn't have the internet back then remember so they would have these stapled together uh, xerox packs of people who wanted to get together and either be peed upon or do group sex or whatever and then books as well with everything from having someone beat you up while you masturbate to having sex with your mom just hundreds of different sexual deviations possible and then they also had a some even dicier business, uh, such as a peep show room where a woman would be on would strip on one side of a piece of glass glass, and the customer by himself in a private room would watch on the other side, give giving the woman orders and then being free to touch himself as much as we want. There was also a gallery of video booths where it's like a phone booth size room that has a chair and a video screen and a, and you put quarters into it so you can jerk off to different porno movies. And that was always kind of a gross thing, mostly because on Friday and Saturday night it would turn into a pretty heavy gay scene. And that wasn't a big deal because on the door of each of these booths down the hallway they would have a picture of what kind of movie they were showing. So maybe eight out of 10 of them would be, or six out of 10 of them would be just regular pornography. Then they would have one that was a group sex one, and then one that was a B and D. So there'd be people in black leather and nipple clamps. And then there was the one or two ones that had man on man action. And then, so the gay people usually knew like, oh, this is where the other gay person is. I'm going to, you know, knock on the door, step inside, and we can have a, a twosie fun time. Uh, but they eventually got rid of that system and put in a switching system so that people no longer, you could go into any booth and pick your movie and people no longer knew whether you were gay or straight inside the room. So that caused actually quite a few fights when some of the gay men would try to come in and offer BJs to perfectly straight men trying to, you know, who have their dicks out. At the place also was a massage parlor, which was essentially a fancy way of selling hand jobs or the velvet release as it was called uh, to clients. I think it was $48 to get in the session and you were expected to tip the model as they were or the masseuse. I don't think we could technically call them masseuse because they weren't licensed massage therapists. Another $50 to get your release and as a clerk there my job was mostly just to take the money and then peek in and make sure that everybody's uh, that the, the, the model's head was still upright and not when that her feet were on the ground because it would so conflated and so close to prostitution that it would have been illegal for those things to happen. Uh, it was a pretty disgusting job. I had gotten it because mostly because I had my long punk rock hair at the time and I wasn't a great candidate to work in a more conservative business. And also, they paid a dollar extra over minimum wage, which made it a fine place to work. There was other perks, such as you could basically do drugs, uh, drink, and smoke. And essentially, they were very lenient towards stuff like that. 
I got the job and which was all fine. The about two weeks in, the manager of the store that had hired me had decided to rob the safe. And so I got there one morning and the crew from headquarters was there and they made me manager. And so very quickly I became manager of the Velvet Touch in Kalamazoo. The organization itself had, I think, nine Velvet Touches around the state of Michigan and were very hostile towards government, interestingly. They would actually sneak into towns under the name Executive Executive Studios, it was a name like that, to get clear all the legal work so that they wouldn't be blocked from opening their business. And then once they were in, they would be harassed by the police, and then they would put up a big sign that said, fuck you, Kalamazoo police and put it by the side of the road. Uh, It was a very odd organization. Even the people who I met from headquarters were always, uh, you know, probably some of the diciest people I've met. Um, This is also, I have some pretty interesting stories from this place. Uh, There was one guy who used to come in and he would bring us strawberry shakes uh, or various other treats, candy bars, and stuff like that. And so we became friendly with, and I say we because I used to have to sit behind with the the masseuse models. The He became very friendly with the, uh, the staff and everything. And I remember one day he came out from the peep show room, not the peep show, but the video booths, and he had accidentally ejaculated onto his forehead with uh, a line of semen running through his eyebrow. And I was really... I really struggled with that because I didn't want to say, sir, um, I'm sorry, you have semen on your forehead. Would you like a tissue? At the same time, since he was so nice, I really felt bad letting him go back to work because he had come in during his lunch break. Uh, I don't know what he did exactly. Maybe he was a uh, lending agent or a realtor or something like that. I really hated to send him back to the office with semen on his head. But I ended up doing that. And I hope even to this day that this man, uh, maybe he looked into his rearview mirror and wiped it off. We were also open very late, which was kind of scary. They, the management or the owners had given us very primitive tools to protect ourselves in case something bad happened. There was a lead pipe behind the register, which presumably if somebody got out of turn, we could beat them over the head and there was also supposedly a security system and what it was was this dirty old garage door opener that i don't think even had batteries in it and this we were to wear in our belts and in case someone came up and tried to rob us or do some other dicey thing we could push it and presumably these police that had already been told to fuck off on a sign would come and rescue us luckily Nothing really terrible ever happened. Probably my worst event is I did have this sort of full moon type of crazy night where the store was crazy busy. And we used to get bonused if we sold $600 worth of goods that time. So it even it, there was a strategy that if you got to like 550, in between 550 and 600, you would actually merch out. So you'd buy some stuff on your own, knowing that even... If, as long as you got to 600, you get reimbursed for the stuff that you bought, and then you'd get to keep the stuff. I did that several times, and unfortunately, you don't come into ownership of anything extremely valuable. Probably the best thing I ever got was called the noodle, 
which was a two-foot-long double-sided dildo that was quite flexible. And what I used to do is I duct tape that to the back of my bass guitar. So when I played on stage, uh, it looked like I had this two-foot penis dangling in between my legs. That didn't last too long. I, I think it fell down, and the audience had a riotous time throwing this this giant penis, this giant phallus around the, the audience. Anyway, so this night, I'm there, and everything's terrible. And I finally close up at, at 2 a.m., and I lock the door. And I'm just uh, getting the store ready for it's, you know, to be to be left and, you know, counting the till and stuff like that. And a guy, not a strong guy, but a guy about like 6'4 and maybe 250 pounds, kind of a doughy fat guy comes out and he's been hiding in the back room waiting for everyone to leave. And he comes up and he says, you know, I, I really would like to give you a blowjob. And I'm absolutely terrified because the door is locked. Nobody else is there. And there's this giant man uh, insisting that he's going to blow me. And so luckily, I was able to convince him that it was not worth his time and that I wasn't interested. And thankfully, he he walked out without an incident. But I still remember it as if it was yesterday, and it still terrifies me. I know there's got to be a dozen other stories I could tell about my time, my year at being manager of the Velvet Touch the one thing I can safely report is that I never had any kind of active sexual incident that I personally took part of, neither with clientele nor with the girls who worked the massage or the peep show room. Some of these women uh, also told harrowing stories. Uh, some of them were young, some of them were old. Most of them weren't very good looking at all. We had one that was called Horseface. We didn't actually call that to her face, but that was her. They all had names like Destiny and Desire. And, and Ashley was actually a popular stripper name back then, long before it became a popular girl's name for normal people. Uh, I had an employee named Ashley, actually. And um, it turned out that the year that Ashley was the most popular name was the year that she was born. And I thought, oh, that was interesting, but I didn't have the heart to tell her that it used to be a very popular stripper name. Some of them, you know, had horrible stories. One of them, uh, besides Horseface, there was a bag lady who was probably about 50 years old, and her husband would always drop her off, and they would tell stories about how on the weekend she would, he would have a bunch of his buddies over at his house, and his wife would strip on top of the kitchen table doing a show for the other men. I don't know if they actually jerked off while they did this or if they just cheered her on, but that was one of the practices in their family. I got to meet a truck stop whore named Nikki, who, when she was younger, she was probably about 50 as well. Maybe I was pretty young. I was 19, so maybe I thought these women were 50 and maybe they were only 35. She was a truck stop whore, and what that is is you go to a truck stop and you just go from door to door on the cabs of the back of trucks where people are sleeping and you offer your services. And presumably, like somewhere like in the Midwest where it's basically just cornfields, hideways, and truck stops, this can be a very lucrative business. They would sometimes also have a, a CB at the pawpaw shop, which I think, I don't know if I ever visited, but they would actually call in truckers to visit the store using the CB back then. Some of the other women uh, were just, you know, where one of them had was a, a real prostitute who would actually walk the streets, and I passed her one time in driving around, 
and she braised to brag about when her you know boyfriend wasn't hitting her, her pimp boyfriend. Uh, he would require at least one fifth of whiskey before he got out of bed; otherwise, he couldn't function. And so, basically, there was this sort of horror story after horror—not horror story, horror story—with uh, these these workers. I did get to go to the headquarters one time for a big sort of bonfire barbecue, and besides there being lots and lots of these model slash strippers, everyone turned out to be sort of like a long-haired sort of rocker hippie, and so the CEO of this this business actually took a shine to me. Otherwise, it wasn't there was nothing uh, oddly illicitly sexual about the headquarter party for the the managers and the girls who worked there it was just um just like a regular you know people drinking bud light standing around a fire there was also one incident where i had to the two visiting models couldn't find a reasonable priced hotel room in town and so i had to offer them to stay at my place and i was living with my girlfriend at the time and i think that was pretty much the beginning of the end of that girlfriend who was just horrified that I would bring in these two scantily dressed, trashy, smoky, you know, pieces of shit bimbos uh, that gave hand jobs for money. Uh, this girlfriend never really appreciated this job and uh, would soon break up with me afterwards. My other significant job which probably isn't half as interesting, was I, for two years, worked the night shift, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, at Kinko's Copies, which is has since been bought by FedEx, and now they're just called FedEx Stores. And so Kinko's offered photocopying services, laminating, binding, you know, anything with a document, and they had computer stations. Now, the great part about this job was, besides the fact that they paid a dollar or two over minimum wage, especially since it was at night, is that I got a lot of time alone. You could hang out in the middle of the night, and if it wasn't like finals night on campus where people would need late night copies, it was mostly doing corporate jobs of where they would need like 10,000 of these booklets, you know, created and then stapled for a trade show they were going to. And I also got to use all of the equipment there, I became an expert at using these photocopy machines, which doesn't sound like a big deal now, especially since no one even makes copies for the most part. But using these large sale scale self-collating, self-stapling machines, and all the other document machines, the binding machines and everything, were actually a pretty good skill to learn at the time. And then this would, would have been 1992, 1993, so Windows... 3.1 had just come out and there was a Mac station and th three of these Windows computers to actually have time by myself to learn how to use a computer when no one else did was a, a splendid rarity and opportunity. The job also afforded me to, since it was Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night from like 8, 8 p.m. till 8 in the morning, I would miss out on a lot of the party scene, and at the time, uh, the crowd I was hanging out with, out with was really embedded into a lot of drugs, and so through this opportunity, I got to basically try just about every single type of 
illegal drug that's available, even the sort of the scary ones that might involve needles and other things like that. But being kept away and having to work enabled me to probably miss some of the most brutal evenings, the party evenings that I wouldn't get to partake in, leaving me only the nights like Monday and Tuesday, which were still fun because that's where all the punk rock music and my scene would hang out as well. This also enabled me to probably finish school. I don't know if I would have been able to finish school had I partaken in the the heaviest of the the party nights. So this enabled me to eventually graduate, which was pretty good. So the 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 combination of working at Kinkos and then having the easiest coursework available was probably the only key to me actually getting my diploma. We had a small party when I did graduate, and my mom and dad came up and took about seven of my best friends to Carlos Murphy's, a Mexican-Irish-themed restaurant. And there I had given my dad some pottery that I had made from pottery class, and he raised it up in front of the party, and he said, my son, my son, I'm so proud of my son. This pot, this wonderful pot, only cost me $15,000. Now, everyone thought that was funny, and my dad was being a dick because my dad is a dick or was a dick. The interesting point there at being $15,000 is my education actually did, for all five years added up together, was just a little bit over $14,000, including the time I spent in the dorm. So we're talking about whatever room and board I had and my tuition all for $14,000, which seems criminal these days, even adjusted for inflation, that probably would not cover half a semester at a college today. And that $14,000 number is something that I was happy that my parents paid for. They had me pay for everything else as far as living and food and stuff. The That $14,000 I could pay back in under three weeks under my current paycheck. So this current student desk debt crisis that exists we we know is terrible we know we know what uh, us you know who are good with economics know why it's happening because of the the federally guaranteed loans and everything but just imagine how differently people would look at college if they knew they could pay it back within three weeks of working a job 20 years later interesting i didn't really have a political or ethical worldview in college although i and I certainly had never heard of libertarianism at that time. I had never professed to be either a, like a Democrat or a you know conservative or a progressive, but I had instincts. I had already at that point knew that working was important and that I had sort of probably from my dick dad had gotten this work ethic that was pretty, even though maybe I didn't like work, I knew it had to be done. I never had any inklings like my other friends that college should be free or that healthcare should be free. So I didn't have any of those sort of social progressive instincts that a lot of people are taught or acquire in college. And I certainly didn't have a conservatism as I wouldn't have considered, I would have considered myself fairly radical and against authority at that time and not particularly a fan of wars, although I still didn't have a political vocabulary at the time. The other feature of my 
budding worldview, which even would have gone back to high school, is that I had really no animosity towards businesses or corporations. So even in college, people would have these very ferocious opinions about what a department store like Walmart or a corporation like McDonald's uh, would be, you know, raping the earth or whatever, and was taking our money. But I always viewed something like McDonald's as being like cheap, tasty food that I liked. And I would see that the business would sell me my Nintendo game or something else that I valued, or that a piece of clothing that I, I owned or a piece of food that I bought all came from businesses. So I had this natural sort of affinity for business and for consumption, at least the consumption side, and a work ethic, and no illusions that the government should be giving me something for free. So I think if you start putting those together, you can sort of see a natural libertarianism bubbling up that was free of any you know, classical liberal thought or theory no one had to, you know, I didn't have to read any books or listen to any podcast to come to a lot of those those ideas. They just existed naturally within me. And it was when I later, 10 years later, would actually find libertarianism and the ideas that I'd go, oh, wow, this is what I've believed in. This is what I've been looking for. It wasn't an education. It was more of discovering something I already knew. For a political context, this would have been 1993. So this would have been Clinton would have just Clinton, the man, not the woman, would have just been starting being president. And the economy was absolute garbage. We were told there was no jobs anywhere. At this time, when I was finishing up graduation and our band was breaking up, I decided that I would move to to a commerce center, somewhere where there was jobs besides meatpacking and cereal production, which were the the big, you know, big value industries in Kalamazoo. And so I started on a quest to, to find either people I could move with and a place to go. And, and some of the places I had thought about were like New York City, San Francisco, maybe Washington, D.C. I don't know if that was really on, on the radar at the time, but I eventually picked Boston. I was too chicken to go to New York City and San Francisco was too far away. And I, so I started getting like the Boston newspaper after I graduated and was amazed to find that the help wanted section was bigger than the entire Detroit free press. There was just a wealth of jobs and they were all sorts of totally different jobs. They were, and I, I wouldn't probably have realized this, but they were in the budding technology industry. They were in consulting, financial services, biotech to a degree other sort of research services, and the types of jobs were all office jobs. So my strategy was is that I would move to a commerce center, like a real city, and I would try to become a musician because there was only so much you could do as a musician being based out of a small Midwest town. The strategy was I knew I had to work, and so I could be a, you know, work in a bar or work at a donut shop or something making minimum wage and would still have to do that to pay rent and would still have to do music afterwards to while I pursued my career. So I decided that I would get a full-time job that had the potential to grow into something that paid more 
and could actually be, uh, you know, a real job on my resume, a, a real stepping stone up to sort of the hedge the bet uh, with the music, which turned out to be either a good, great idea or a terrible idea. And I think I might have discussed this before because it almost guaranteed me to the corporate life because you really do have to dedicate yourself to music full time for it to be a success. When I moved, I actually found my friend Dave, who was also had just graduated and was ready for a change of scenery. And so we had take we took the summer to sort of hang around with our parents after graduation in Michigan. And then we drove out in a pickup truck to Boston. Prior to moving, I did apply for several jobs. And what really differentiated my resume was, of course, not my degree in acting and watercolor painting, which was wholesale useless. But what did shine was my experience at Kinko's using copy machines and computers. As it turns out, the entry level to most companies is the mailroom, and that's where eventually where I would end up. So we, we moved to Boston. We, we sort of, we'd, I had never been there, and neither had Dave. And we were just about in town. We pulled over and went to a hotel, and it was too expensive. And we asked, well, where is the cheap hotels? And so he pointed us to, the, to Route 1 in Saugus, where we would find a room that we could rent for $40 a night. One of the, we had basically had thrown away all of our possessions and brought essentially a suitcase each with clothes, no bedding except for a blanket and a pillow. And I had brought my amp and a microwave oven, and that was it. That's all we had. And so that week, we actually lived very cheaply by plugging the microwave into the hotel room and getting microwave burritos, and we would take the bus into town and we only had a week to secure jobs. I ended up getting a job at a technology research company in the mailroom, as I just mentioned. My friend Dave ended up a month later getting a job as a carrying as carrying boxes for a McDonald's distributorship, which he actually got paid more than I did. My first job was paid twenty thousand a year, which I was absolutely thrilled. I thought I was the king of the world making that kind of salary. That that works out to about ten dollars an hour now and wouldn't even cut it in the sort of Seattle, we want $15 an hour minimum wage. But I thought it was a great wage at the time and was thrilled to be working for like a real company where I would show up and work with other executives and business people. In that week time, before I'd actually secured the job, we picked where to live basically by just finding us the subway train that said Boston College on it. And we were like, well, if there's a college over there, there must be cheap rooms for rent. And the first place that we got, we got a studio split, which is essentially you get two rooms that you sort of co-use as one person, you know, it's a bedroom for each person. But then, you know, in the corner, you you might put a uh, stereo and that becomes your living room. And the other one, you put a desk and that becomes your office with a galley kitchen. It was probably around, I don't know, like maybe 400 square feet, 500 square feet, and cost us $600 per month, which was an absolute fortune back then because we were both used to paying around $110 for our rooms in Kalamazoo. So this this put up our rent for a tiny, tiny place in an apartment building at 300 each. But it turned out to be a great place to live in Austin, a neighborhood in Boston, and we would explore and party 
and we probably went to the bar just about every night. And every day, every weekend, we could just sort of wake up and head in a direction walking. Usually we'd take uh, a sports sports bottle, like one of the people you know that a runner would use, and we'd fill it with ice and gin and just sort of trot around the city. And the city was, was big, it was beautiful, it was sophisticated. We met all sorts of new people very quickly, and the move was completely transformative. And even though my parents thought it was an awful idea that I should just live in Detroit for the rest of my life, my dad said, you know, I could move to Detroit, maybe I could, I could go to accounting school and be an accountant there. But moving to Boston ended up to be just totally kick-ass. We're an hour and a half in, and I think this is a good time to stop and call this part one of my struggle. The next episode should be part two, where I will take the Boston move as a starting point and tell you what happens next, especially make good on those promises about Ron Paul and the guy that jumps in front of a train. Hopefully you've learned now that I don't have any original thought, but you can use that basis to understand those little corners and little new thoughts that I do have in context from where I come from. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. I'm going to leave you with the closing song on Screwtape's album. This is Anthem on Anthem with me playing bass and singing. It's super, super short, super sweet, but you really have to hang until the end because you're going to hear one of the best guitar solos ever laid to tape. Enjoy. Enjoy.